So this evening we're reading the whole of Isaiah chapter 35, page 720. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Thanks for reading, Jeremy. Please do keep that passage open. We're going to refer to it over the next few minutes. John said to me before the sermon, before the service, uh, Pete, your sermon's going to be a glorious crescendo to our series. And I thought, yeah, right. Well, we'll see about that. Uh, So we'll do the best that we can, uh, at least. Um, There are two types of joy. At least, I think. There are two types of joy. Uh, There's a joy that some people have for natural reasons. And praise God when people enjoy these sorts of blessings. Uh, Perhaps someone grew up in a happy, supportive home, and it instilled them with uh, joy and and a kind of um, uh, sort of natural positivity they take throughout their lives. That's fantastic um, if uh, you've experienced that. Uh, There's a joy we have from things going well in life uh, around us. There's a joy that's fueled by being successful. There's joy experienced when someone is popular and liked, and they're regularly complimented um, by others. There's a joy from having a relatively easy life, free from concerns, worries, and suffering. Many of us uh, get to enjoy that. There's joy from having choices and opportunities in life, uh, maybe created by inherited wealth or by um, a good education that opens up lots of doors uh, for someone. Now, those kind of blessings and the joy that comes from them uh, should be celebrated, We should rightly thank God for them 
uh, when they're in our lives and in the lives of others. I have a friend who has very supportive parents. Uh, Growing up, she always felt very comfortable and safe at home. And her parents weren't super rich, but they never worried about money. Um, And they helped her out early on with tutors uh, for those subjects at school that she struggled with. They went on holiday um, twice a year to nice places. Um, When she studied languages, they paid for her to go on trips abroad, which really helps, I can say. Uh, There's a kind of peace and joy to her life, which is fantastic. And that should be celebrated. Uh, One should give thanks to God for her blessings and the joy that stems from them. But that's not the only kind of joy that exists. There's another type of joy that you might describe as an unnatural joy. And this kind of joy is celebrated more often in the Bible, because in some ways it's a greater joy, a superior joy. Uh, Not to say the other type of joy is bad, just that this joy is better. This joy exhibits God's excellence in a particular way. In it, God's splendor especially shines in unnatural joy. It's great to be blessed and be joyful, but actually it is greater to be unnaturally joyful. Now, this is the kind of joy that Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 35. Please take a look at verses 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. If you've seen the Chelsea Flower Show, uh, what people manage to produce there is truly amazing. And they cultivate beautiful plants. They collect the very best examples and they combine them in just the right way to produce an incredible spread for the eye. In fact, the Chelsea Flower Show is what you should be thinking of as you read the next two lines of verse 2. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon These were famously lovely and lush landscapes back in Isaiah's day. And elsewhere in the Bible, we're told how we should look up to God as the great gardener to see his perfection published across creation. And indeed, Isaiah's oracle here is also about seeing the splendor of God. Last lines of verse 2. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God, he says. But here, it is not simply about God's creation revealing God's creativity. It's a transformation that reveals God's triumph. God's not starting from neutral here. He's working with an expanse that has evolved to become hostile to life, the wilderness, the parched land. Look again at at verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and bloom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The splendor of God is truly seen when the Sahara becomes the Savoy. That is the particular thing that Isaiah is talking about here. The desert and parched land are not a natural place for joy to occur. The wilderness is not a comfortable residence rejoicing and yet that is what God creates in these places this is joy that comes from difficulty this is joy in the midst of despair 
This is joy that springs from a desert. Joy that comes from earthly blessings is fantastic. But this kind of joy is greater even than that. The person with the troubled past and string of painful memories, who through the gospel learns a deep sense of peace and joy despite that, The person trapped in the depths of depression who through the gospel learns a joy that has a deeper root even than that uh, terrible affliction. The person who isn't in a job they feel makes best use of their gifts or whose work isn't appreciated by others or who feels eclipsed or replaced by a colleague or a junior who through the gospel finds joy in the task God has given them. That is unnatural joy. Joy in the face of disappointment. Joy that seems to have no basis in anything you can see. It is the gladdening of the desert, the rejoicing of the wilderness, when the barren desert blossoms into a fruit-bearing pasture. That is the joy that most truly glorifies God. Because in it, we see displayed the greatness of his character and power. How he brings brilliant things out of weakness how he brings fruit out of uh, dry ground. And all of us have opportunity to display this particular glory of God in our lives. Everyone experiences some sort of desert in parts of our lives somewhere. But some of us here have felt overwhelmed by the desert, that the picture of a dry and cracked land that so closely captures your life at some period, or maybe for long periods, for one reason or another. Maybe you've always wanted to be married, but aren't. Maybe your marriage is much harder and less satisfying than you thought it would be. Maybe your kids' behavior or academic performance is not what you'd long for them. Maybe your body never achieved the um, uh, uh, goals that you wanted for it, for whatever reason. Well, here is another perspective to view situations like that. God is most glorified when he turns the desert into the garden, when he causes the wilderness to be glad. Joy in those contexts is particularly God-glorifying because it's not obvious why you'd be happy when things are hard. I have another friend in his early 60s this time. Many things have gone wrong for him in his life. He was doing a PhD later in life than most do, and he got thrown out of his institution. A couple of months ago, he got fired from his job, and he's, he's quite sick and doesn't have insurance in the country that he comes from. And yet he's one of the most patient and quietly cheerful men I have ever met. He's assured me that he didn't used to be like that. When he was in his early 20s, he was full of anger and frustration uh, on all sorts of things. He was impatient. But now, he's a joyful person, despite all of this stuff that life keeps throwing at him. He's dramatically changed as a person over the years. He doesn't have a personality that's naturally positive. Uh, For those of us who are like that, again, that is fantastic. But there's something particularly amazing about seeing someone transformed in that way from the way he was before to the way that he is now. And I I find him much more inspiring and encouraging than many of the more successful people 
that I rub up against. I long to be like that, and I long to follow his example. Isaiah says in verses 3 and 4, what happens to bring that kind of change about? Please look at those with me. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. And just notice three things, if you would please, about um, what those words there say. Firstly, the people who benefit here are not naturally strong. They're not joyful, they are weak, and they are fearful. They're weak, they don't have much power, and the overwhelming emotion they have is one of fear. It's exam time for many of the teenagers in our youth group at the moment, and it's plain to see um, that fear is the enemy of joy for some of them. There's so much pressure on young people in our culture to do well, uh, to get to the best university, and the fear of failure can be absolutely huge. And overwhelming. And when you're scared about the future in some way, it saps joy from life so easily. It's been a great privilege, actually, just as an aside, and a, a real encouragement for me, uh, seeing many of the parents uh, at Christchurch wisely counsel uh, their teenagers through this stressful period of their lives. I've heard some brilliant things that teenagers have told me their parents have said to them, uh, and I've been deeply, deeply encouraged by that Um, but in that same way that um, at those times like that particularly in our late teens when we face lots of stressful um, and and fearful things about the future so too here people are weak and fearful uh, the people that are being spoken to in Isaiah 35 look at what Isaiah tells his disciples to do in light of that it is to say stuff to them Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. He doesn't tell them to go on a course. He doesn't give them a special diet. He doesn't prescribe a a strict regime of exercise and general fitness or tell them to take any pills. Uh, As good as all those things are and as helpful as they can be, uh, they don't make the parched land glad or turn the Kalahari Desert into Kew Gardens. Isaiah says, no, 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 go and preach to people. It is preaching that Isaiah prescribes. It's hearing a message that has this transforming effect in people's lives. And the transforming message is given in verse 4. This is the third thing, just to pause on in these verses. At first glance, it it looks rather strange, actually, the actual message that Isaiah tells them to preach. So we'll pause for a bit and try and unpack it. Verse 4 again. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now if you think about the tone of the rest of this chapter, to talk about God's judgment, I think, sounds like a really bizarre thing to say. The rest of the chapter is so overwhelmingly positive. It's all about joy and greenery and sort of lots of nice things and flowers and all that kind of stuff. And the desert blossoming into a luscious landscape. And yet here he talks about God's vengeance and stuff. 
That seems to be the big thing. Go and tell people about God's vengeance. Look at the effect of what doing that has uh, on people. Look what these words do. Isaiah explains that in verses 5 to 7. Verse 5, then will the ears of, uh, sorry, the ears of the blind, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This message about vengeance and stuff is a healing message. One so powerful that even those who were deaf and couldn't hear the preaching would have had their ears opened by it. It ends disability, this message. It physically transforms people with broken eyes, ears and limbs and tongues that are missing or don't work. Or imagine the person um, who's silent and lost in depression. You can't get out of bed for days and just can't speak to other people. Imagine that person leaping up and shouting, yes, yes, amazing, awesome. And transforming completely. That's the kind of picture that Isaiah gives of the effect of these words. Isaiah goes on in verse 6. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. My question is, how is that produced by a message of judgment? Doesn't that seem so contradictory? God will come with vengeance. God will come with divine retribution. How does that work? The reason why that has such positive effects is because God's anger is a good thing for God's people. When Christians think of God's anger or judgment, we tend to talk about it as something that we need to be saved from. The Bible often, and usually actually, talks about God's anger in that way. There will come a day at the end of time When the world will face God's judgment, and if I were to face that on my own, I would deserve punishment. But Jesus was punished in my place. He took the judgment I deserve. God's anger at my sin fell on him. That's the usual way that we talk about God's anger uh, when we talk about it at church. But that is not there all the Bible has to say about God's anger. The gospel goes even further than that. Flip back, if you would, to... Uh, chapter 34. And you get a sense of the tone of this chapter just from the first few lines. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. And look in the following verses what God will do in his anger. He will destroy them, give them to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked in their blood. The stars will dissolve. Verses 5 and 6, God's sword will be bathed in blood. He will make the nations his sacrifice. You couldn't get a stronger contrast to what we've got in chapter 35. Why does all this happen, though, in verse 8 of chapter 34? For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. In other words, God's people, the people of Zion, are not just saved from God's anger and judgment against sin, but because they are God's people, his anger and judgment are exercised on their behalf. 
if you're someone who has put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then not only will you be saved from God's anger when he comes to judge the world, but God is coming in judgment to stick up for you. Verse 4, again, of uh, chapter 35. Your God will come. He is your God. He will come with vengeance against those who treated you badly from the context of the previous chapter. With divine retribution, he will come to save you from all the ways that you've been wronged in this world. Now, perhaps we might be tempted to think, ah, yeah, but this is, this is just the Old Testament. And it says kind of crazy stuff like that. God worked differently back then to the way that he does now. I wonder if you remember, though, that parable in Matthew 25. The one about the end of time. When Jesus comes to judge the world and he separates people into sheep and goats. One group will be with him forever and the other will go to the place of eternal judgment. Jesus is very stark about this. And he makes his decision based um, on how they have treated God's people. He says to them in explanation, Truly I tell you, whatever you did or did not do for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did or did not do for me. Jesus so identifies with his people that when he comes at the end of time to judge the world, he will judge the world on the basis of the way people have treated the church. When God comes in vengeance, he comes to give vengeance on behalf of his people. His anger and judgment is an anger and judgment that saves his people from the evil of this world. Think on that for a moment. You're not just saved from God's judgment. God's judgment is now on your behalf. If you trust in Jesus, then God's wrath and judgment will save you. You're now so connected to him that his future plans for the universe are shaped around giving you justice for the ways that you've been treated badly. That is an awesome and actually slightly scary thought, isn't it? What an incredible thing to say. Worth pondering on this week. Isaiah looks forward to a future day when God's people in exile will be returned to their land. Take a look at verses 8 to 10. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. In other words, there won't be any internal threats. This returned people uh, who've come back from exile will be a pure people. There won't be any difficult um, problems within the community that cause a problem for anyone else. Verse 9, no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. In other words, there won't be any external threats to this people. This return people will be secure. Secure from the inside and secure from the outside. And he goes on. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In this future time, when God's people will return from exile, Isaiah's talking about, The transformation from wilderness to luscious meadow 
will be complete. All sorrow and sighing will be gone and instead replaced with gladness and joy. I still have one question about that 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 I've struggled with a bit and some of us may have that as well. How does that actually create joy now? In fact, this is a big problem many have had with the book of Isaiah, actually. Much of Isaiah's book is written about God's people going into exile in Babylon and returning again to the land of Judah. Now, Isaiah um, was walking around and prophesying and writing stuff down um, in the 8th century BC. But God's people didn't go into exile and return again until the 6th century BC, about 200 years later after that. So how on earth would what Isaiah is saying be relevant to the people listening to him if much of what he's talking about wouldn't happen for 200 years? Lots of Bible scholars try and argue that, well, in that case, Isaiah didn't write much of the book of Isaiah. And much of what was uh, of it was irrelevant to people in the 8th century, and therefore why would he write it? And so they have really complicated theories uh, about um, different people who wrote stuff down and it came under Isaiah's name and all this kind of stuff. But actually, we still have a similar problem today as we read the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was talking about God's people returning from exile in Babylon. But what that really points to, where his words are ultimately fulfilled, is in the second coming of Jesus. The end of this creation, when God will bring in his new creation. Traditionally, at Advent, we celebrate Jesus' first coming and his second coming at the same time. And so if Isaiah's original hearers have a problem, we have exactly the same problem. Fine, in the future there will be a time when God visits his people and will visit judgment on all those who've mistreated them, but why would that make me joyful now? Well, think for a moment um, about the prophets of our time. As I reflect on this, I realize the prophets that I get most excited about are prophets of the space program. The picture of a future humanity in space has inspired thousands of men and women since the 1950s to give their lives to science, technology, engineering, all to bring that vision about. I dare you to watch Brian Cox and not get really excited. Do you know what I mean? When he says, you know, I I can't do him, you know, but, you know, mankind is, you know, This is so amazing. Think about what we are in the universe. We're a tiny speck. He tells us about who we are as a species. And then he says, think about what we could do in the future when we go out to Mars and we go out to, uh, you know, Jupiter and all that kind of stuff. And you get really excited watching it. And you know you're never, ever going to go out yourself. But still you get really excited. You know that probably you'll never see anything like that happen in your lifetime. But still you're really super excited about what's going to happen in the future. Thousands of people who will never themselves go into space have been inspired by the idea of putting another man on the moon. Thousands of people who would never see the robotic probes that will reach eventually Jupiter and Saturn were inspired by what those missions would achieve in the future, decades after they stopped working toward making them a reality. And so they were driven by that vision beyond themselves. Today, thousands of people have been inspired by Elon Musk and his SpaceX vision to work on producing amazing rockets and stuff like that that will one day result in humanity living permanently elsewhere in the solar system. Even though they won't personally live to see much of that end goal that they're working towards 
in their lifetime. The vision of what could happen in the future is enough to drive every decision they make about their own lives right now. The space program is amazing. Amazing. If you're not excited, go watch a documentary. I dare you not to be excited by it. In Isaiah's day, this vision of what God would do in the next centuries would have inspired believers in his vision to dedicate their lives to it. One day in the future, maybe not in our lifetime, there will be world peace. There will be a highway of joy. No one will spoil it from within and nothing will threaten it from the outside. Imagine, says Isaiah, imagine what that would be like. And people gave their lives to that vision. How incredible is that? We could be part of that story. What do you live for? What is your vision for humanity? Where do you see us going as a species? And how do you fit in that story? The SpaceX vision of humanity living on other planets excites me. Though I don't expect to see anything but the smallest realization of that while I'm still alive. But I've got to say, Isaiah's vision of humanity, living a perfect future society, excites me even more. And to sweeten the deal, we will be there to see it. Because all who trust in Jesus will rise from the dead when he comes back. And we'll enjoy it with him. And we'll be involved in building his great project. Not just that, we get a glimpse of what that will be like now in our relationships with each other in the church. The key message that Isaiah says to go out and say is God will come and he will save us by taking vengeance on those who are enemies of his people. Jesus says right now, enjoy fellowship, help others who are um, uh, my people. If you give the, the least of one of these a cup who is thirsty, You've given it to me, Jesus says. That is how much he associates with us. That future is in some senses already begun now amongst us here. As you catch that vision, you taste a joy that is above anything we experience in this world. No matter how good or bad the grade in your exam, no matter what people think of you, at work, no matter what your family life has turned out or not turned out to be in the way that you expected. There are two types of joy. Both are good. But that joy, in particular, is better. The joy that displays the glory of our God. The joy where the wilderness blossoms. Let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you sent prophets, that you sent this prophet, because you had a great vision for the future, a fantastic vision of how the world will be perfect. And we thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you want us to experience joy In the future, you want us to experience it absolutely perfectly. And now, Heavenly Father, you want to display your glory by giving us joy even in the wilderness, even when the parched 
land has no water in it at all. We thank you that that will be transformed completely one day and our experience uh, will match up um, with uh, these great promises. We pray now, Heavenly Father, you'd help us to look forward to that great vision in the future and to be inspired by it this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.